All right, so um, who would like to ask the first question? Any volunteers, brave people? All right, Priscilla. Um, may not all be a question, but um, when you got up and did your explanation and then you asked for a vote, um, the vote was just for one way, for those who had a problem with the hair being covered, right? Um, and so we had a guest here who um, got up and um, was ready to go because it didn't seem as inclusive as they thought it should have been with that one subject matter right there, okay? And so um, we, we did go out and we did speak to her and um, she did come in and she did complete the, uh, the Juma, but she didn't stay for the circle, which I think the circle was just vital for the women's mosque. Uh, me personally, I could care less. That's just me personally, okay? But what, the way I was raised, the way I was raised is that, yeah, you would go ahead and cover. To me, same. Yeah, to me, it's just, I think that's a battle that isn't worth fighting for that one circumstances. That's just me. It's just not worth it, okay? Um, and so I just want to share that to, so that you will understand that even though it sounded and it seemed to be what it was, it wasn't what it should have been, totally. Anyway, but I love you. Thank you, thank you. Thank That's you. That's really helpful um, to know, and I guess I, I can totally understand that perspective, um, and I respect it, but um, I think the greater issue is, um, not just people, not how people feel, but what they, uh, what they really believe will affect the validity of their religious practice. So I could understand someone feeling uncomfortable with that, but that person, I, I would have to ask them and talk to them, but I would assume that person wouldn't feel that their prayer was invalidated and that it didn't count. Yeah. Uh, of a teaching experience if um, you had to ask both of those questions, okay? Because then that person would have had uh, a response to give. Because she's, she was vocal, okay? She would have uh, voiced her opinion. And so in order for us to be totally inclusive, then we have to do it both ways, you know? Because you got two hands and you were done. Right. And you didn't go the next step. And so that's important. And so just for the record, I wanted to know, I will fight tooth and nail for the women's mosque with anyone. So I've got people who are uncomfortable or not happy with me because I've uh, pointed some things out to them. But I think this is so, so, so important. And as a person who was born and raised into the community, and many of us were, um, I may have come from a different community, but nevertheless, this is really, 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 this women's mosque is so vital for us to develop, to grow, and to make sure, oh, you're here. See, I'm glad you stayed, babe. So, um, so that we can work together and so that we can truly be sisterhood and so we can truly understand our religion, because our religion isn't that structured to craziness. And so this institution and what you have done is vital and I will support it into my dying days. Thank you.
Thank you for voicing that so that we do know about it and it's definitely something we can discuss in our board meeting and, um, and take into consideration for future. I'm sure this is not the only thing that we'll face that we don't have a policy about yet, so it's, it's good to know. Yes. Don't be shy. All right, there's Samia. Thank you for, for choosing that topic. I think it's an extremely important topic, very close to my heart also. And um, so you basically focused on using themes of the Quran as a way to sort of help us figure things out in terms of what the Quran um, is trying to teach us. Is there any other way that you examine the Quran to sort of figure out what the Quran is trying to teach us? Sometimes I look at tafsir, but... I honestly feel very daunted by it because one verse could have three chapters written on it. And um, and sort of at the end, I kind of don't know if it actually helped me in, in kind of understanding the Quran. And so I just wanted to take something that was basic, simple, and that can be applied today and, um, and use it as a, as a sort of guide. Thank you. Thank I you. actually want to recommend a book. Please. Um, it's called Living the Quran in Our Times. And it actually is on the same theme of how do we actually understand and apply the Quran in our lives today. And so it actually gives a number of other strategies also. So I was curious if you were familiar with any of them. Thank you. Do you want to mention, well, I don't want to take up any more time, but oh. do you want to mention some of the others? Sure, sure. Um, well, one of the main things was um, it sort of takes, one of the approaches it takes is a linguistic philosophical analysis. And so it looks at, um, there's actually different functions of language. So for example, uh, you can give la use language to give a command versus making a recommendation. And one of the things that it was pointing in, in the book was that a lot of times the Quran is just making a recommendation on something. But people can, if they don't understand the difference in the use of language, they can take it as a command versus, you know, when it is a command, and again, if you don't understand the difference, you can sometimes be more casual about it. So um, that was just one way, and it was teaching you, like, how to recognize the difference uh, between a command and a recommendation by looking at the language pattern. So. Uh, that was one thing. And another way that um, it was teaching was, uh, I'm blanking now. But yeah, it's a good book, uh, Living the Quran in Our Times. Uh, we have a lot of time today to ask questions. Oh, wait. Assalamu alaikum, Sister Lou Baba. Alaikum salam. Yes. Thank you for your beautiful khutbah. I um, am so much in agreement with what you said about the Quran versus Hadith, because for many years, as a younger Muslim, that was kind of confusing for me because you we hear that the Quran is the revelation from Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then you always have all the people pushing hadith, the prophet said this, and yada yada. And then I read Quran, it will say one thing. The hadith will say something complete opposite on that very subject. So I would walk around in confusion like, what is it? Which one is the way I'm supposed to do it? It's, it's done. Yeah. So one day Allah knocked me upside the head and said, <laughs> <laughs> the best hadith is Quran. So if the Quran says this, 
the Hadith says that, then Quran is the word. And so that's what I try to tell people, and then it's, you get attacked by that. Well, you know, you can't have the Islam without the Prophet. Yeah. I'm not saying we can't have the Islam without the Prophet. What I'm saying is, if you're in doubt, go back to what Allah says in the Quran. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. And I had another thought, I'm like you, I'm blanking out. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to get it to come to me, because it's a very important point. But anyway, if it comes later, I'll tell you. Please, but but thank, thank you so much for thank sharing you. your knowledge. And do you have advice for like when people are facing that uh, sort of pushback, what you say in those situations? Um, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I'm honestly not sure I've really ever said anything, to be honest. Um, I. I know that it's a very sensitive topic for a lot of Muslims, and so um, sometimes I just don't have the language to kind of say what I'm saying, but uh, I guess it's just important for myself to know. Um, and also, you know, what was really interesting is that, you know, I grew up Muslim, but I never learned that there were different um, strengths to hadiths either until I was much older and um, you know and I, I also think that that's a failure of um, some at least the Islamic schools that I went to where you um, you're not really given like a good full foundation and so you know you could have if I had that knowledge maybe I could have challenged you know people who are quoting various hadiths that really is used to probably hurt me, for example, or, or something, because I felt like, um, I don't, yeah, I just felt like hadiths were used more in a negative way than actually in a beneficial way for me, personally. Oh, uh, yes, um, so, so the levels of strength in hadith is measured on, um, you know, there's, there's this whole series of, and if somebody knows a better way to say this, please chime in. Um, you know, series of transmittance of what the prophet said and, and kind of down the line. And so um, people who have transmitted what the prophet has said, um, I don't know, somebody please help me. I mean, they tr please, thank you. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I feel like you might know more than me. I don't know. Um, I just know that like even different schools of thought will hold some people's, um, transmittance is in a higher esteem and will invalidate other people's hadith. So it also depends like who is the person talking in the hadith. But you might have had something else. It might even just help to kind of go through the history a little bit. So um, uh, essentially when the prophet was alive, peace be upon him, he did tell his companions, do not write down anything I'm saying, because he didn't want his words to compete with the words of the Quran. And so because he said, do not write it down and anything you have, burn it, um, of what I'm saying, um, there were no written records of what he said. So people were saying, were transmitting what he said through an oral tradition. So um, you, for, for example, for a particular hadith, before you even read the hadith, there's this whole history of this person heard it from this person, heard it from that person, who heard it from that person, who heard it from the prophet. Um, and I mean, to, to its credit though, did they, this, uh, so essentially what happened was 
around two, three hundred years after the death of the Prophet, peace be upon him, there were about six million hadiths. Um, because at this point, you know, people were making things up. People were uh, knew the power of um, people knew the power of. Oh, the prophet said that, so you have to do that. You have to, you know, do my taxes, whatever, right? <laughs> um, and um, and it became very clear that there were a bunch of completely fabricated false hadiths in the mix um, with the the authentic ones. So then the scholars of that time, two, three hundred years after the death of the prophet, peace be upon him, um, they set out on a mission to clarify and condense and figure out which ones were actually authentic and which ones were false. Um, and, so, um, and so what happened was uh, there were a few prominent scholars who um, essentially came up with the best, what are now considered the best um, compilations. And to their credit, they did an excellent, excellent job at figuring out the difference. Like they had a very thorough process. And uh, uh, Sahih Bukhari, um, which is usually considered, um, you know, the most stringent, most uh, accurate collection of hadith, um, I believe he took those six million and condensed it into less than 6,000. So just to show you how stringent he was and how strict, um, and would take things into consideration like the character of the people who were transmitting, um, would compare like, okay, did groups of people say this? Um, uh, did, you know, is there even one person amongst this transmission of narrators who is a liar um, or known to be uh, a liar? Um, and the amazing thing is that um, this was actually, you know, when you hear people talk about the tens of thousands of uh, female Muslim scholars that existed after the Prophet's death, peace be upon him, the majority of those scholars were hadith transmitters or rawiya. Um, and the reason they were chosen was because um, at that time they believed that women, uh, or women did live longer, they had li longer lifespans, so they would sit as young children um, and memorize the hadiths that were being transmitted. And so um, because of their longer lifespan, they had a shorter amount of transmitters in that chain, so it was considered a stronger chain. Um, and also another cool thing is that they found that um, very, very rarely when you find a weak hadith, um, or um, essentially the women's hadiths were more accurate, the ones that they were transmitting, so you would very rarely find weak hadiths that the women were passing down. Um, and so when people talk about the strengths of hadiths, weak or strong, um, they're talking about the accuracy. Um, and even within Sahih Bukhari, who is considered, you know, his collection is considered the best of the best, even during his time, it's important to know that um, there are about 239 or so uh, hadiths of his that his contemporary scholars still thought, oh, they might not be authentic. Um, uh, and then one more thing I have to say about that is that there's also, uh, in the Shia tradition, they also have their own methodology of collecting hadiths. Um, they started about 100 years after the Sunni scholars did. Um, but what they do that the Sunni scholars don't do is that they also, um, when they're examining for accuracy, they will actually take the content into consideration and they will weigh it against the Quran. Whereas the Sunni scholars would not uh, criticize necessarily the content of what was being saying, being said. They would just um, look at the methodology and who was involved in, like you know, um, comparing notes essentially. 
Um, you know, so the, the way that I found out all, all of this was through El Rawia College. So Sheikh Harima Youssef, um, she was one of my uh, inspirations, you know, even for, for starting the mosque. Um, she started an online uh, Muslim women's college. Uh, El Rawia is um, essentially based on that tradition um, of female um, transmitters. And so it's I believe in like the second uh, semester, the classes are really cheap. It's like $160 um, for a semester and you just watch the videos online. Um, but there's one uh, class that's specifically on hadiths. Yeah, but you can, I mean, there's so many sources you can, um, did you wanna explain anything? Okay. Uh, thank you, Lubaba, for that really insightful and interesting khutbah. Thank you. Um, so I've been learning more about um, when Muslim women choose not to wear the hijab based on their Quranic understanding. Um, but I'm not too familiar when women choose not to wear it when they pray. So if you feel comfortable, I'd love to hear about your perspective on that and how you came to that decision. Um, sure. I mean, th this is just um, pure personal decision. Um, I I'm not sure I really have any Quranic verses in my head right now that I could um, give to you. but. Basically, when I stopped wearing the hijab all the time, I then found myself in these situations where I wanted to pray but couldn't pray because of the teachings that I had that I couldn't pray without a scarf. And I really felt that that limited me and it limited my connection with God. And I felt that um, if I wanted to pray, then God would accept my prayer whether I was covering or not. And, um, and so since then, um, I've just chosen not to cover while I pray because um, I really do believe that Allah will accept me as I as I am and um, as I put myself forward in front of God. And yeah, that's basically it. Great question. Assalamu alaikum. I remember what I was going to say. <laughs> okay. I appreciate what you said about um, the scholars with their interpretation of the Quran when they translate it because I feel as you do, because I feel that Allah has give, given us all wisdom yeah. and diverse about the, the oceans and the ink and the words, that sort of thing like that, that he has given us all the ability to understand his word and he has special messages for each and every one of us. So yeah. if I read an ayat in the Quran and I come up with yada, 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 then someone can't say to me that, oh, that's not what it meant. You had to go talk to Shay, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. I, that's how I feel on a personal basis. Yeah. Okay. Now, when it comes to the head covering, well, this is how I feel. When I read the Quran, Allah doesn't tell me I have to cover my head. In the, in, during the history, right before the Islam, women generally wore their heads covered and they wore their chest out, and they wore their thighs showing, and all that other stuff. But they had on head covers for whatever reasons, to protect them from the sun or whatever. So the women were already wearing their head coverings. So Allah told them to take your head coverings and cover up your chest. Mm -hmm. So from that came, Allah told you to cover up your head. Yeah. But he did not, if you read your Quran carefully, he didn't say cover your head, he said take your head coverings and cover your chest. Put them boobs back up in there. Have those boobs <laughs> on the men. Okay. But it's a tradition to wear your hair covered. So that's, I wear my hair covered. 
And even if it's not all the way covered, I'm gonna have something up here, but some might be hanging out in back. And there have been times when I'm driving down the street, you know, and it's covered here, but maybe this is hanging out in the back and it's time to pray. I've made my voodoo, so I go ahead and pray because I feel like you that Allah says he accepts from anybody their prayer. Yeah. And he didn't say whether you're Muslim, Jew, or whatever. He said, when you turn to him and pray, he accepts your prayer. And I feel that Allah, whether my hair is covered anyhow, he can see my hair anyhow. <laughs> you know, so I'm not trying to influence anybody to no. do, but I'm just saying, you know, you know, in our religion, a lot of misconceptions have crept in yeah. by people with tradition or, like you said, the, the, chain, the prophet said 2,000 years ago and so-and-so said, he said that he said it. So, you know, when I tell you something, by the time it gets around the room, it's different. Yeah. You know, so my conclusion after years of struggling with Quran, Hadith, he said, she said, and I one day said, look, I accept Islam because Allah touched my heart and he chose me to be Muslim. So it's Allah alone that I serve. I don't serve none of y'all. So, yeah. <laughs> so I'm gonna practice my religion. Lakum dinukum waliyadin. To me be my way and to yours. Thank you. And, uh, no, and it goes back to my point of Islam not trying to control every facet of our lives. And, um, and, and so I just, I really truly believe that. So thank you. And um, my comment, I never have a question, it seems. It's always That's a comment. Okay. So. Um, being the way we were raised and what we saw, um, when my time came as an adult to uh, work in our school system, um, Claire Muhammad School, which I, grew, I graduated from, it was real important for me to share with the students little bitty things that they weren't going to get from the school system. And, and uh, I took a lot of heat for all of those things, but I thought it was important because there's always a struggle and a burden for those of us who were raised into the community and grow up into the community and then become adults. There's always challenges, you know, social, social um, just world challenges. And uh, many of us lose our way. Uh, many of us decide to walk away, and many um, eventually come back, and they may not come back, but the point is, is that those circumstances are there, and they're real. And so as a teacher, it was really important for me to show the students that Islam isn't, and being a Muslim, a good Muslim, isn't always about how long your dress is and how much covering you have on your head. And um, that's just one thing. So that I, I would do the outrageous, okay? Um, and it was all for sharing and hoping to enhance and broaden their world and their understanding on how to be a Muslim or what it is to be a Muslim um, based on all the other stuff they're getting. And then um, on the Hadith thing, I don't speak Arabic. Um, I have yet to start learning Arabic. Um, but I know with the Quran, it's, you, you have to read it so much and you just have to keep reading it. And every time you read it, you keep getting more stuff out of it. But I never took any substance or importance on the hadith simply because every time I heard something about hadith it was always about what I couldn't do. Oh sister you can't do that, hadith say this, sister you can't do this, hadith say that, sister oh no hadith. So my opinion of hadith was it, it is not important in my world. The Quran is the only thing that's important in my world. And um, 
our religion is interesting, but I do think sometimes we forget the big picture. <laughs> and the big picture is the prophet brought us the information, but the prophet couldn't have brought us crap if it hadn't been given to him, okay? And so that's the only thing that's important to me is my God. Um, whether I give him a name or I don't give him a name. That's the, all that's important. Every deed, everything I say, everything I do, every bad, good, whatever, is already is right there, and I'm constantly trying to work on that. So I appreciate um, this Koopa really, really. Um, it's helped me a lot for things that are coming up in the future. Thank you. Um, and then were also, you, an, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I just wanted to ask, were you encouraged by the school to teach these various differences? I, I taught them by um, example. Um, and uh, I, I always, I, I teach in a certain way. So I'm always, everything is positive. Muslims don't do that. Why don't we steal? <laughs> Why don't we lie? You know, um, so that's how I teach. And so I teach by example. And I, I must admit, I see my students to this day, they're grown, they have children of their own. And they seem to be a little bit more comfortable in their skin and in their religion. So I kind of pat myself on the back. I think I had a little. Great job. Um, another book um, on hadiths is Misquoting Muhammad. Um, by Dr. Jonathan Brown. Um, Mahin's laughing because we have a halakha and it's, it's not the best halakha book because it's very, very dense reading. Um, but he essentially goes into all of the, the whole, uh, you know, history of hadiths and how people have come to misquote uh, the Prophet, peace be upon him. Um, and I think, uh, I'll take your question next. Um, I think essentially though, you know, uh, I forgot who said it, I think it was you that, um, you know, essentially, each of us has a direct connection with God, and what is what one person's instruction or the rules that one person should follow don't necessarily all always apply to someone else. Um, so, what I like to do, I am an istikhara addict. Um, istikhara is the guidance prayer, um, and whenever there's anything I'm in question of, I um, I will pray istikhara about it, and I will follow the answer that comes to me directly. I believe from God, and um, the the translation is. Um, Essentially, God, you have all power, I have none. You have all knowledge, I have none. Um, in your knowledge, if doing this matter, and whatever it is, you fill in the blank, if doing this matter is good for me in this world and the next, uh, and for the consequences of my affairs in this world and the next, then bless me in it and help me in it. And if it's not good for me, then turn it away from me and turn me away from it and uh, guide me towards the good wherever it may be and cause me to be pleased therewith. Uh, I mean. And so my particular, what I prayed, my answer for wearing a headscarf uh, normally was no. And I, I prayed it maybe six times over the course of my life. It was like, no, 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 no. Um, and then the one time I prayed it about um, uh, uh, wearing it during prayer, it was yes. Um, and the, the thing that um, I based that decision on also um, was just looking at the various, uh, like the Jew, Jew, uh, um, Jewish women and Christian women um, and the tradition of covering hair um, 
while praying. And then I also uh, found that the prophet, peace be upon him, would also cover his hair when he prayed. He would wear a skull cap. So then that showed me that maybe it's not so, and this is my own interpretation. I, I encourage everyone to find their own interpretation. Um, but this was how I kind of read my istikhara and the results of my istikhara test. Um, and what I kind of got out of it was um, perhaps it's not so much about how God sees me, but maybe it's about me physically transforming myself in a way to put my body into presence and knowing that, okay, now I'm ready for prayer. Um, or maybe there is even something, you know, on a spiritual level um, that I can't see something physically happening with me on a spiritual level that needs to be contained with with some sort of covering. So that was my my path. But I encourage everyone to to really pray on their own and find their own path, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Um, so I am um, I'm a convert seven months into it. Um, and I'm also uh, still learning a lot about the, the religion. Um, I've, I've studied Islam for about seven years before I finally made a, a decision. But um, I, uh, I come from a very strict Christian family. Um, they're very orthodox. And one of the things that I did not enjoy about that religion was all the restrictions that was put in place. You have to do this so God accepts you. You have to do that so God accepts you. And that made me feel lost. Um, and I think that's why I, I turned to different religions to kind of find myself. And the one that spoke to me was Islam, alhamdulillah. Um, but the reason, the reason why I chose Islam was because I felt like there was no restrictions. If I read the Quran, it's just God wanting you to do the right thing, wanted you to, you know, uh, pray for him, help others, not steal, not cheat, do the right thing every day. I didn't feel like there was any restrictions on how I should pray, when, um, when I should wear a scarf or not. And I believe that kind of helps guide me every day to, to continue on being or trying to be as close to God as I can. Um, but I'll be honest with everyone that and, and maybe this is me, or if any of you guys are converts that maybe remembers this, this time, is if I wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning to pray, or 5 o'clock in the morning to pray, and I'm going to get on my knees to pray to God, and it's, someone is going to tell me, not the ground, someone is going to tell me that God is not going to accept your prayer if you're not wearing a scarf, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to go back to bed. Because at that point, I'm resenting and I don't want to resent. So as far as the, the, the scarf, that's my one and a half points on it. It's, it's, I honestly believe it's your belief, but it shouldn't be imposed on others. Um, and the other, the other part to that is, today we live in a, in a very difficult time in the world where Islam is looked at um, as not a religion, but more of a a terrorist or terrorism and I honestly believe in my heart of hearts I have battles to pick and choose am I gonna battle everyone about wearing a headscarf or I'm gonna am I gonna sit there and try to explain to them that Islam is is a peaceful religion do I want to spend my time explaining a hadith that said I should wear a scarf or do I want to take my time explaining to them what the five pillars of Islam is so that's my one and a half cents I will admit that um, I'm sorry for that as well. Um, I was gonna walk away from here today because of the scarf issue. And um, 
not because I disrespect anyone's um, feelings, but at the same time, I believe that I don't like others imposing their ideas on me. And I want to belong somewhere, but if that place that I'm going to belong is going to make me feel uncomfortable, that's what made me get up and leave today. So, but thank you, sister, for bringing me back. So, and thank you for the khutbah. It was great. Welcome. Yeah, it's so great to have you. Is this your first time? Oh, welcome. Alhamdulillah. Um, all right, Hannah? I have a question for Lubaba. Um, if you go to like a you know conventional mosque, um, do you come across like you know problems with you know you not covering your hair? Because I know I experienced that. Like, I guess maybe my scarf wasn't like big enough or something. I don't know. <laughs> like, but they're like, hold it, sister. And so they you know they wrap me up. I was like, okay, that's fine. But I, I don't know. I, I didn't feel very comfortable. So I don't know if like. Like, how do you deal with those situations? Um, to be honest, I don't go to um, traditional masjid spaces because of that issue. There's a lot of policing of women's bodies and the way you cover and are your pants too tight and, and this and that. Um, and so I personally don't intentionally go to those spaces unless, um, you know, I'm with my family or, or something like that. And in that case, then I will cover because I'm not going to have a conversation with every single person and I want and I come to the masjid to pray and not to have an interaction with people and justify my faith with them. It's me again. <laughs> That's a topic that I would like to hear someone teach about because um, I know I'm a convert 42 years and I know a lot of people are born into the religion but we have different understandings of the religion. There is a master that, that I attend, I won't name a name. There was an incident there a few years back where, you know, by us being in America, we have people who are not Muslims. So a lot of times we might invite our families out, and if my family is coming, they're wondering, how, do you, how should I dress? Come as you are. I'm not gonna put any restrictions on you, tell you to whatever, just come as you are. So one lady invited, one of her relatives out and she came and she had a dress on and she didn't have a scarf on. She's sitting there listening to the khutbah and a sister goes by and just tosses a scarf on top of her head. And everybody gasped, you know, whatever. Like, okay, you don't do that. So the lady just gently took it off and sat there. And I really felt bad, you know. So I'm like, you don't do that kind of stuff. So I talked to the sister afterwards, so I greeted her kindly and yada, 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 because I, I knew who she was. I had talked to her before, and, and I just said, you know, she said, oh, let me go run. I got to apologize. So she, she got the message. She went and apologized. And two weeks ago, I was sitting in the masjid, listening to the khutbah. You know, you're not supposed to talk during the khutbah because that's part of the prayer. And the sister is down next to me. You know that sister over there, she doesn't have a headscarf on, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> well, I know I'm not supposed to answer, but I'm like, okay, Allah, you know. I said, well, I said, listen, she's, she's a visitor. She came out to, to hear the word, so leave her alone. Okay, I'm blah, blah, blah. I'd like to have a, hear a khutbah on that subject, that we have to be mindful of where we are practicing our, our Islam. We are not in a Muslim country. People here have never heard what Allah, what Allah is talking about in the Quran. When I feel when they come out to hear the word, don't run them away, because incidents like that, they won't come back. So I'd just like to hear someone talk about that. 
in a traditional masjid. You know, these incidents, um, so we'll, we're going to end soon, you'll be the last person. Um, these incidents really are indicative of where we are as an ummah, um, because this is exactly why we need Quran literacy as a campaign, as a culture, because these incidents happen when we are hadith focused rather than Quran focused. Because I'll tell you the first time I read the Quran in English, I was, um, it was right after 9-11, I was in 11th grade. Um, and from what I was hearing on the news, I thought that, you know, I was worried that all the th stuff they were saying was true. And when I first opened it up, I remember my hands shaking because I was afraid that I was gonna find all sorts of things about how to dress, what to do, what I'm doing wrong, everything. And so I was shocked to find that it was all about charity. It was all about giving, you know, giving to people and um, holding yourself accountable for your actions. So I think that's the real thing we need to focus on is just education. Um, and then also what's interesting from a historical standpoint is that, you know, we all hear about the golden ages in Spain when um, Muslims were in power and, um, the, even the Jews that lived under Muslim power, they called it the golden ages because of the equality that they, they faced. Because it was this amazing, almost, well, this is what we believe today. It was a, this almost utopian society, right? Um, and it was like that for the first, uh, I believe, 400 uh, or so years. And then as Islamic Spain started to fall, when the Crusaders were coming in, the scholars of that time um, well, first of all, society had kind of devolved into very superficial uh, matters, but even the scholars at that time, as they were being invaded by crusaders, was what, what area to take wudu up to, to your elbow or to above your elbow? <laughs> um, and I think the same can be said for today, right? Maybe we're not facing crusaders, but Muslims all over the world are being bombed and killed, and this is what our scholars are focusing on. So... It's, it's this getting lost in the details because we don't have that Quranic grounding. And I think that is the one solution, the one cure-all. So um, what I try to do is I, I try to have compassion for those people, though, too, because they don't know any better. They, they genuinely believe, like, oh, I want, you know, I want to help you be a good Muslim. And so they just don't know any better. So um, rather than taking it personally, I like to take it as, like, this is someone who, who needs help in their own life. Like, how much more merciful would they be on themselves if they had the gift of the Quran? Right. So also think about them. They are also suffering because of this mentality and this lack of knowledge. Um, so that's also a way to kind of ease your heart in those situations where it's easy to feel, you know, it is a form of victimization, but you don't want to get in, stuck in that victim mentality because that prevents you from taking action and doing things. Assalamu alaikum. Um, I unfortunately missed most of the speech, so sorry about that, but I was curious to see if anything was mentioned in regards to the correlation between, um, as a society, how much we cover um, correlating with imperialism. Um, one thing I've noticed that kind of gets left out of the conversation most of the time about Muslim women covering up or not is that it's always, um, it's had a long history of being an activist um, it's a form of active, actively counteracting um, someone else's imposition on you. So for us to, I guess, our more contemporary issue being that it's internalized where now wearing the scarf is enforced in Iran or Saudi Arabia. Um, and then the new form of active, 
being an activist in that community is to take it off or to wear it where it's showing your bangs. Um, so we have that, you know, that internal struggle that we're counteracting for our freedom um, and trying to preserve our relationship with God um, and not having anyone else interfere with that because that feels like a sin. Um, and the verbiage on that varies, but I know what it feels like. Um, and then at the same time, dealing with whether it's from, if you're in the East, whether it's the West, whether it's just any form of imperialism, someone trying to colonize your village, um, and then wearing the scarf to, I mean, at, at the end of the day, it's literally a piece of fabric that's veiling you. So you're physically trying to protect yourself, whether it's from foreign military men um, that have been known to rape Muslim women, whether it's from getting kidnapped, from just being identified, because that in itself, when you're during wartime, that makes you vulnerable. Um, so I don't know if that, if you, you're welcome to chip in at any point, if that was mentioned and how it's, it, there's one thing to, I love the point that you mentioned where you wear it during prayer because it triggers a, um, almost like a ritual where you feel like it triggers your consciousness and a, or a part of your consciousness that um, allows you to hone into your practice and your faith and your, your perspective. But there, there are women who consistently don't wear the scarf um, and they don't feel that it, you know, infringes on their faith and their practice because they, they don't want their consciousness triggered by fabric or by anything man-made. They think consciousness should be triggered by your meditation between Allah and yourself. Um, and that is an internal thing. It's not something anything outside of you can ever substitute. Um, so... I don't know, maybe I missed that part. You mentioned it, I don't know. No, 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 um, I, yeah. I didn't mention it at all. Um, actually, this stemmed because um, right before I got up to do my khutbah, um, we asked the community if they felt that um, wearing hijab and giving the khutbah needed to be... Just so some people believe that wearing hijab and, and praying is a requirement and it's part of their belief practice. And so when a khutbah is being given, people believe that the first two rak'ahs in, in the dhuhr prayer are... Um, the, the, khut, the khutbah is that the two rakahs, right? And so since um, some people believe that you should be covered while praying, um, that the khatiba should also be covered. And so um, I was the first khatiba to ask if I could give it uncovered, the khutbah portion, and then I could pray covered. Um, and so we asked the community, and this is where um, this all stemmed from. But I, I didn't mention anything further in my khutbah about that. But that that's a really great point, though, about man-made materials, and that was really, thank you. Yeah. And um, if you wanna um, see or listen to more on that topic, um, Dr. Khalid Abu al has a four-part lecture series on uh, the headscarf or hijab, um, and he goes into the colonial history and how it was actually a journalist in England um, and a journalist in Egypt that kind of started this whole battle um, for identity. Okay, very, very last. Priscilla, you always do this. <laughs> I just wanted to say this from a personal note. So when we started coming, what, two years ago? Three. Three years ago. Um, and I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, what? T-Sisters got their hair uncovered inside them. What? 
okay? And so I had to adapt. I had to say, was it really that important? Because we're here for a purpose. So, um, you know, we have to grow. And um, we have to maybe unsacred our spaces to a point of um, getting somewhere. Anyway, I said I'll Yeah, and, and on that point, you know, the prophet, peace be upon him, when there was a Bedouin, a man, an uneducated man who came into the mosque and started urinating on the mosque wall, he told the people who rushed towards that man, don't stop him, let him finish. And then after he was done, he went up and said, this is a mosque, this is a sacred space, we don't do that here. So if the prophet, peace be upon him, could be okay with urination inside a mosque, I'm pretty sure, you know, clothing is not that big of a deal. Um, but inshallah, we do have a come as you are dress code policy, so everyone is always welcome to come as they are, and that should never be a barrier for why you come uh, join us, inshallah. All right, thank you all. Um, we just have a few announcements.